Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode six called The Reign of Commodus. In the last episode, we heard about the Pax Romana, the 200 years of peace and prosperity that Rome brought to Europe in the Mediterranean. Indeed, it was the longest period of peace in Europe's history. Although, of course, since the Second World War, we've had 75 years of peace, which is pretty good going. But this podcast is about, of course, the fall of Rome. And in this episode, we'll look at when most people think this began, which was in the reign of the infamous emperor Commodus. Now, Commodus is probably one of the best known Roman emperors because of a film that I think is wonderful and which was a massive hit 20 years ago. Yes, I'm thinking, of course, of Gladiator by Ridley Scott, starring Russell Crowe as the Roman general Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the Northern Legions, as he famously says. But Russell Crowe's character is entirely fictional. Whereas two of the other main characters are very definitely not, and they are, of course, Marcus Aurelius and his son Commodus. Joaquin Phoenix plays Commodus and I think does a brilliant job portraying the mad, egotistical and vindictive emperor. And although Marcus Aurelius, played by Richard Harris, doesn't really figure too much in the film, he was, of course, one of the most highly regarded Roman emperors, the complete opposite of his son. Admired for his benevolence and love of philosophy as recorded in his famous book called The Meditations, which amazingly has really become one of the most popular self-help books today, full of good advice with things like being patient with difficult people and ways of avoiding feeling depressed. Really quite extraordinary if you think about it that it was written by a Roman emperor. So, in this episode, I'm going to do something slightly different from the previous episodes where I've been narrating my own research. Instead, I'm going to read from one of my favourite Roman historians called Edward Gibbon. Now, he is regarded as probably the greatest Roman historian of all time, since he spent 20 years writing an epic called The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's a huge work in six volumes and takes up thousands of pages. It was written over 200 years ago in the 18th century, just before the French Revolution, but it's still widely regarded as a masterpiece of not just history, but also literature. Indeed, many people say it is the best history book ever published in the English language. So I'm going to read an extract describing the life of the infamous Commodus. So let's hear what Commodus was really like. Commodus was not, as he has often been represented, a tiger born with an insatiable thirst for human blood and capable from his infancy of the most inhuman actions. Nature had formed him of a weak rather than a wicked disposition. His simplicity and timidity rendered him the slave of his attendants, who gradually corrupted his mind. His cruelty, which at first obeyed the dictates of others, degenerated into habit and at length became the ruling passion of his soul. Upon the death of his father, Marcus Aurelius, 
Commodus found himself embarrassed with the command of a great army and the conduct of a difficult war against the German tribes, the Quadi and Marcomani, the servile and profligate youths whom Marcus had banished, soon regained their station and influence over the new emperor. They exaggerated the hardships and dangers of a campaign in the wild countries beyond the Danube, and they assured the indolent prince that the terror of his name and the arms of his soldiers would be sufficient to complete the conquest of the dismayed Germanic barbarians, or to impose such conditions as were more advantageous than any conquest. By a dexterous application to his sensual appetites, they compared the tranquillity, the splendour, the refined pleasures of Rome with the tumult of a Danubian camp, which afforded neither leisure nor materials for luxury. Commodus listened to this pleasing advice, but while he hesitated between his own inclinations and the awe which he still retained for his father's counsellors, the summer insensibly passed, and his triumphal entry into the capital of Rome was deferred until the autumn. His graceful person, popular address and imagined virtues attracted the public favour. The honourable peace which he had recently granted to the German barbarians diffused a universal joy. His impatience to revisit Rome was fondly ascribed to the love of his country, and his dissolute course of amusements was accepted in a prince of only 19 years of age. During the first three years of his reign, the forms and even the spirit of the old administration were maintained by those faithful counsellors to whom Marcus Aurelius had recommended his son, and for whose wisdom and integrity Commodus still entertained a reluctant esteem. The young prince and his profligate favourites revelled in all the licence of sovereign power, but his hands were yet unstained with blood, and he had even displayed a generosity of sentiment which might perhaps have ripened into solid virtue. But a fatal incident decided against his fluctuating character. One evening, as the emperor was returning to the palace through a dark and narrow portico in the amphitheatre, an assassin who waited his passage rushed upon him with a drawn sword, loudly exclaiming, The Senate! sends you this. The menace prevented the deed. The assassin was seized by the guards and immediately revealed the authors of the conspiracy. It had been formed not in the state but within the walls of the palace. Lucilla, the emperor's sister and widow of Lucius Verus, impatient of the second rank and jealous of the reigning empress, had armed the murderer against her brother's life. She had not ventured to communicate the black design to her second husband, Claudius Pompeianus a senator of distinguished merit and unshaken loyalty. But among the crowd of her lovers, she found men of desperate fortunes and wild ambition who were prepared to serve her more violent as well as her tender passions. The conspirators experienced the rigour of justice and the abandoned princess was punished first with exile and afterwards with death.
But the words of the assassin sunk deep into the mind of Commodus and left an indelible impression of fear and hatred against the whole body of the Senate, those whom he had dreaded as hostile ministers. He now suspected as secret enemies, the Delators, a race of men discouraged and almost extinguished under the former reigns, again became formidable as soon as they discovered that the emperor wanted their disaffection and treason in the Senate. That assembly whom Marcus Aurelius had ever considered as the great council of the Roman nation was composed of the most distinguished of the Romans and distinction of every kind soon became criminal. The possession of wealth stimulated the diligence of the informers. Rigid virtue implied a tacit censure of the irregularities of Commodus. Important services implied a dangerous superiority of merit, and the friendship of the father always ensured the aversion of the son. Suspicion was equivalent to proof, trial to condemnation. The execution of a considerable senator was attended with the death of all who might lament or revenge his fate, and when Commodus had once tasted human blood, he became incapable of pity or remorse. Of these innocent victims of tyranny, none died more lamented than the two brothers of the Quintilian family, Maximus and Condianus, whose fraternal love has saved their names from oblivion and endeared their memory to posterity. Their studies and their occupations, their pursuits and their pleasures were still the same. In the enjoyment of a great estate, they never admitted the idea of a separate interest. Some fragments are now extant of a treatise which they composed in common, and in every action of life it was observed that their two bodies were animated by one soul. The Antonines, who valued their virtues and delighted in their union, raised them in the same year to the consulship, and Marcus Aurelius afterwards entrusted to their joint care the civil administration of Greece and a great military command in which they obtained a signal victory over the German barbarians. The cruelty of Commodus united them in death. The tyrant's rage, after having shed the noblest blood of the Senate, at length recoiled on the principal instrument of his cruelty. While Commodus was immersed in blood and luxury, he devolved the detail of the public business on Perennis, a servile and ambitious minister, who had obtained his post by the murder of his predecessor, but who possessed a considerable share of vigour and ability. By acts of extortion and the forfeited estates of the nobles sacrificed to his greed, he had accumulated an immense fortune. The Praetorian guards were under his immediate command and his son, who already discovered a military genius, was at the head of the Danubian legions. But Perennis aspired to the empire, or what in the eyes of Commodus amounted to the same crime. So Commodus had him put cruelly to death. Meanwhile, pestilence and famine contributed to fill up the measure of the calamities of Rome. The popular discontent, after it had long circulated in whispers, broke out in the assembled circus. The people quit their favourite amusements for the more delicious pleasure of revenge. When they rushed in crowds towards a palace in the suburbs and one of the emperor's retirements and demanded with angry shouting the head of Commodus's main minister... Cleander, who commanded the Praetorian Guard, ordered a body of cavalry to sally forth and disperse the mob. 
the multitude fled towards the city. Several were slain and many more were trampled to death. But when the cavalry entered the streets, their pursuit was checked by a shower of stones and darts from the roofs and windows of the houses. The foot guards, who had long been jealous of the prerogatives and insolence of the Praetorian cavalry, embraced the party of the people. The tumult became a regular engagement and threatened a general massacre. The Praetorians at length gave way, oppressed by numbers, and the tide of popular fury returned with redoubled violence against the gates of the palace itself, where Commodus lay, dissolved in luxury and alone unconscious of the civil war. It was death to approach his person with unwelcome news. He would have perished in this supine security had not two women, his eldest sister Fadilla and Marcia, the most favoured of his concubines, ventured to break into his presence. Bathed in tears and with dishevelled hair, they threw themselves at his feet and with all the pressing eloquence of fear discovered to the affrighted emperor the crimes of the minister, the rage of the people and the impending ruin which in a few minutes would burst over his palace and person. Commodus started from his dreams of pleasure and commanded that the head of Cleander should be thrown out to the people. And so it was done. The desired spectacle instantly appeased the mob, and the son of Marcus Aurelius might even yet have regained the affection and confidence of his subjects. But every sentiment of virtue and humanity was extinct in the mind of Commodus. While he thus abandoned the reins of empire to these unworthy favourites, he valued nothing in sovereign power except the unbounded licence of indulging his sensual appetites. His hours were spent in a seraglio of three hundred beautiful women and as many boys of every rank and of every province and wherever the arts of seduction proved ineffectual, the brutal lover had recourse to violence. The ancient historians have expatiated on these abandoned scenes of prostitution which scorned every restraint of nature or modesty, but it would not be easy to translate their too faithful descriptions into the decency of modern language. The intervals of lust were filled up with the basest amusements. The influence of a polite age and the labour of an attentive education had never been able to infuse into his rude and brutish mind the least tincture of learning, and he was the first of the Roman emperors totally devoid of taste for the pleasures of the understanding. Nero himself excelled or affected to excel in the elegant arts of music and poetry, nor should we despise his pursuits had he not converted the pleasing relaxation of a leisure hour into the serious business and ambition of his life. But Commodus, from his earliest infancy, discovered an aversion to whatever was rational or liberal, and a fond attachment to the amusements of the populace, the sports of the circus and amphitheatre, the combats of gladiators and the hunting of wild beasts. The masters in every branch of learning whom Marcus Aurelius provided for his son were heard with inattention and disgust, while the Moors and Parthians who taught him to dart the javelin and to shoot with the bow found a disciple who delighted in his application and soon equalled the most skilful of his instructors in the steadfastness of the eye and the dexterity of the hand. 
But even the meanest of the populace was affected with shame and indignation when they beheld Commodus enter the lists as a gladiator, and glory in a profession which the laws and manners of the Romans had branded with the basest note of infamy. He chose the habit and arms of the secutor, whose combat with the retiarius formed one of the most lively scenes in the bloody sports of the amphitheatre. The secutor was armed with a helmet, sword and buckler. His naked antagonist had only a large net and a trident, with the one he endeavoured to entangle, with the other to kill his enemy. If he missed the first throw, he was obliged to fly from the pursuit of the secutor till he had prepared his net for a second cast. The emperor fought in this character 735 times. These glorious achievements were carefully recorded in the public acts of the empire, and that he might omit no circumstance of infamy, he received from the common fund of gladiators, a stipend so exorbitant that it became a new and most ignominious tax upon the Roman people. It may be easily supposed that in these engagements the master of the world was always successful. In the amphitheatre his victories were not often bloody, but when he exercised his skill in the school of gladiators or his own palace, his wretched antagonists were frequently honoured with a mortal wound from the hand of Commodus and obliged to seal their flattery with their blood. He now disdained the appellation of Hercules. The name of Paulus, a celebrated secutor, was the only one which delighted his ear. It was inscribed on his colossal statues, and repeated in the redoubled acclamations of the mournful and applauding senate. Claudius Pompeius, the virtuous husband of Lucilla, was the only senator who asserted the honour of his rank. As a father, he permitted his sons to consult their safety by attending the amphitheatre. As a Roman, he declared that his own life was in the emperor's hands, but that he would never behold the son of Marcus Aurelius prostituting his person and dignity. Notwithstanding his manly resolution, Pompeius rescued the resentment of the tyrant, and with his honour had the good fortune to preserve his life. Commodus had now attained the summit of vice and infamy. Amidst the acclamations of a flattering court, he was unable to disguise from himself that he had deserved the contempt and hatred of every man of sense and virtue in his empire. His ferocious spirit was irritated by the consciousness of that hatred and by the envy of every kind of merit, by the just apprehension of danger and by the habit of slaughter which he contracted in his daily amusements. History has preserved a long list of consular senators sacrificed to his wanton suspicion, which sought out with peculiar anxiety those unfortunate persons connected, however remotely, with the family of the Antonines without sparing even the ministers of his crimes or pleasures. His cruelty proved at least fatal to himself. He had shed with impunity the noblest blood of Rome. He perished as soon as he was dreaded by his own domestics. For Marcia, his favourite concubine, and Eclectus, his chamberlain, and Latus, his praetorian prefect, alarmed by the fate of their companions and predecessors, resolved to prevent the destruction which every hour hung over their heads, either from the mad caprice of the tyrant or the sudden indignation of the people. 
people, Marcia seized the occasion of presenting a draught of wine to Commodus, her lover, after he had fatigued himself with hunting some wild beasts. Commodus retired to sleep, but while he was labouring with the effects of poison and drunkenness, a robust youth by profession a wrestler entered his chamber and strangled him without resistance. The body was secretly conveyed out of the palace before the least suspicion was entertained in the city or even in the court of the emperor's death. Such was the fate of the son of Marcus Aurelius, and so easy was it to destroy a hated tyrant who, by the artificial powers of government, had oppressed during thirteen years so many millions of subjects, each of whom was equal to their master in personal strength and personal abilities. And that ends this episode. I think you can tell that Edward Gibbon, or indeed anyone else for that matter, didn't think much of Commodus. So thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to subscribe, tell a friend, or best of all, to leave a review. That would be fantastic. Thank you. And in the next episode, we'll get back to my own narrative about the gathering storm that would envelop the Roman Empire, not least the political problems that the Empire had, which enabled dissolute emperors like Commodus to rule. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>